This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mysterious Circumstances. Got a kind of fun, historical, we're going to try to debunk some curse type episode, and we're going to be talking about the curse of King Tut. Part one is going to be just documenting who King Tut actually was and talk a little bit about some of the people involved in the excavation, and then we're going to talk a little bit about curses, because curses were not unheard of in certain dynasties. So yeah, I do have some Patreon and a Venmo donation to think, and I'm going to do that on part two, because I just want to get going on this episode. So, Tutankhamun, commonly referred to as King Tut, because it is a lot easier to say, He was an Egyptian pharaoh who was the last of his royal family to rule during the end of the 18th dynasty, which he ruled from 1332 BC to 1323 BC, and this is during the New Kingdom of Egyptian history. Before he was referred to as Tutankhamun, he was Tutankhaten, and Tutankhaten meant living image of Aten, and... Tutankhamun meant living image of Amun. The Aten got replaced with Amun after his father died because his father was Akhenaten. So King Tut was born, which I'm just going to refer to him as King Tut because some of these words are, uh, there's a lot of stuff to remember and it's hard to pronounce a lot of this stuff. So we're going to call him King Tut. He was born in 1341 BC, and he died in 1323 BC. He was about 18 to 19 years old when he died, and his burial plot was referred to as KV-62. In 2008, DNA analysis found out who his father was, which was Akhenaten. He was identified as the mummy found in the tomb KV-55. His mother... On the other hand, because back in the Egyptian times, along with Europe royal families, you gotta keep that royal bloodline pure. So there was a lot of incest going on. And King Tut's mother was his father's sister, and they identified this through DNA testing. They're not sure who his mother is, but she is referred to as the Younger Lady, and she was found in tomb KV-35. 
King Tut took the throne at the age of eight or nine years old. And he also decided to marry his paternal half-sister, who was named Ankesanaman. During their marriage, they had two daughters, which I did not know. This is why this was so much fun for me to research, because I got to find out a lot about a lot of shit that I don't know. But they had two daughters, and they lost both of them. One of the daughters was lost at about five to six months into the pregnancy, and the other one was born, but lost afterward. So King Tut ended up restoring the ancient Egyptian religion after its dissolution by his father. So he brought back the priestly orders of two cults and began restoring old monuments that were damaged during the previous Amarna period. He reburied his father's remains in the Valley of the Kings and relocated the capital from Akhetaten back to Thebes. So King Tut, a little bit of a description for you, and I will be perfectly honest, if you Google the DNA computer-generated picture of what he actually looked like, holy shit, I'm not going to lie. He's shaped like Shrek, for those of you who know who Shrek is. I mean, a big old clubbed foot, had to walk with a cane, and we'll get to some of his, uh, some, some of his physical disabilities here in a minute, but he had this huge overbite, I mean, probably from a lot, a lot, a lot of incest through the bloodline and stuff, but yeah, kind of a goofy looking dude, but from what I understand, as a pharaoh, as a king, he supposedly did a fairly good job, I guess, people liked him, he had a slight build, he was only about five foot six, 167 centimeters tall, he had very large front incisors, and an overbite that was characteristic of his royal bloodline and they measured the dimensions of his loincloths and his belts and shit they indicated that he had a pretty narrow little waist and then these big rounded hips in january of 2005 king tut's mummy was ct scanned and the results showed that this king had a partially cleft hard palate and a mild case of scoliosis with a deformity of his left foot along with bone necrosis that required the use of a cane. And they did find a bunch of canes in his tomb. And he had a lot of other health issues too that included several strains of malaria. So this dude was not healthy at all. And to be honest with you, back then, I mean, the average lifespan what, probably 30, 40 years old, hard telling. So then they tried to find out the cause of his death. And there are no surviving records of how he died. So there's a lot of debate and a lot of studies that have been done to try to figure this out. So one team suggests that his death was likely the result of the combination of his disorders that he had that were weakening to him. He had a leg fracture, which was probably the result of some kind of fall, and he had a severe malarial infection as well. But another team argued that sickle cell anemia would fit the pathologies a lot better, and they suggested that this was pretty interesting and very, very plausible as well. It has also been suggested that the king was killed in a chariot accident due to a pattern of 
really bad crushing injuries from what they said, including the fact that the front part of his chest wall and ribs were missing. To go on the missing ribs, those were unlikely to be the result of any kind of injury sustained at the time of his death. Photographs taken at the conclusion of Howard Carter's excavation in 1926 show that the chest wall of the king was there. It was intact. And he was still wearing a beaded collar with falcon head terminals. And the absence of both the collar and chest wall was noted in a 1968 x-ray and further confirmed by this CT scan that they did. It is likely that the front part of his chest was removed by grave robbers while they were trying to steal this beaded collar. And the intricate uh, beaded skull cap that the king was pictured wearing in 1926 was also missing by 1968. And fun fact, just last month an article came out that says there is evidence to suggest Howard Carter probably stole a lot of shit from this burial site. We'll get into that in part two. But King Tut's death marked the end of the royal line of the 18th dynasty. He was buried in a tomb that was unusually small considering his royal status, and they suggest that it was because his death may have occurred unexpectedly, and this would have been before the completion of a big royal tomb. And this caused his mummy to be buried in a tomb that was intended for someone else. Because um, you have to preserve the observance of the customary 70 days between death and burial. So they did not have time to build this whole grand tomb. Now this tomb was robbed at least twice of a bunch of shit. And based on some of the items that were taken, which were like oils and perfumes and stuff like that, and the evidence of restoration of the tomb after the grave robbers went in there, these robberies more than likely took place within several months after he died. So it was very shortly after he died, people went in there and just started taking shit. And they're taking like oils and perfumes. They were also scared of curses back then as well. And like I said, we'll get into that here in a minute. Now, the location of the tomb was lost because it ended up being buried by debris from other tombs. And all these people that were building these tombs, their fucking houses were built over his tomb's entrance. So that's why it took him so long to find this tomb, which I thought was pretty interesting. I mean, they kind of just forgot that he was a king and put him in a smaller tomb. And they're like, well, we got to put these fucking houses somewhere. Might as well put him at the entrance of King Tut's tomb, you know, because they thought he was somebody else. So the concession rights for excavating the Valley of the Kings was held by a guy named Theodore Davis from 1905 until 1914. Now, the Valley of the Kings was located across the Nile from Luxor in Egypt. In that time, those nine years, he found and dug up ten tombs. As he continued working there in the later years, he uncovered not much of anything significant. It was just kind of random tombs and stuff like that. Didn't really find much, but those ten tombs were it. But Davis did find a bunch of objects in the tomb known as KV-58 that referred to the boy king, Tutankhamun. 
And this included like knobs and handles, and they had the embalming cache of that king as well. And he believed that this was the Pharaoh's lost tomb, and which would have been King Tut. And he published his findings. He said, in those findings, I fear the valley of the tombs is exhausted. But in 1907, a couple years after he started excavating this, British archaeologist Howard Carter was invited by William Garston and Gaston Maspero to excavate in the valley for a guy named George Herbert, who was the 5th Earl of Carnarvon. He was known as Lord Carnarvon. I'm going to refer to him as George Herbert. So Herbert and Carter, they had hoped that them getting involved with the excavation would eventually turn into them gaining all the concession rights and the excavation rights when Davis gave it up. So until then, they had to be happy with whatever they got. And they were doing excavations in different parts of the Theban necropolis for about seven years. So the concession of Davis ended in 1914. And beginning in 1915, Herbert and Carter started searching for King Tut's tomb and some other ones as well. And on November 4th, 1922... November 4th, shout out, it's my birthday. Carter discovered a step that marked the entrance to King Tut's tomb, which was KV-62. Then a couple weeks later, on November 26th, 1922, the tomb itself was discovered. So after they discovered this tomb, a day and time were selected to unseal the tomb with about 20 witnesses that were appointed by different people. Some of these witnesses that were there were George Herbert, also known as Lord Carnarvon. There were several Egyptian officials. There were museum representatives. There were people on the staff of the government press bureau there. They were bringing archaeologists and professors and stuff like that from America over. So it took a little while, and on February 17, 1923, just after 2 o'clock, the seal was broken. And when they broke that seal, Howard Carter was holding this little candle to illuminate the tomb, and George Herbert, Lord Carnarvon, asked him, Can you see anything? Howard Carter replied, Yes, wonderful things, which is a little bit inaccurate. Carter did write in his personal journal that his exact words were, yes, it is wonderful, but everybody just kind of ignored it, and they went with the, yes, wonderful things. So, a little bit of fact for you there. Within a couple weeks, by late February 1923, the whole antechamber uh, had been cleared of everything except two sentinel statues. This was a major, major discovery. This tomb was almost perfectly intact, and this received worldwide press coverage. This discovery launched the world into the modern era of Egyptology. Howard Carter was on top of the world at this point. He had made one of the most amazing discoveries in history. Pharaohs had been buried in the Valley of the Kings from the 16th to the 11th centuries B.C., most of the tombs had been just hit by grave robbers from 
very early on, but King Tut's was the first to be found almost entirely undisturbed for about 3,000 years. But shortly after that, some shit starts going down. Within 12 years of opening the tomb, nine of the archaeologists on Howard Carter's team would be dead. And this would start the whole thing about the Pharaoh's curse and people wondering if it was real. And I mean, it started quickly after they unsealed that tomb. So let's take a look at what's inside this tomb. There were 5,398 items found in the tomb, including a solid gold coffin, face mask, thrones, archery bows, trumpets, a lotus chalice, gold toe stalls, furniture, food, wine, sandals, and fresh linen underwear. It took Howard Carter 10 years to catalog all of these items. They did a recent analysis on one of the daggers that was discovered in the tomb, and it had an iron blade made from a meteorite, which is pretty damn cool. So the study of artifacts of the time, including like other artifacts, all of them from King Tut's tomb would provide like a lot of insight into some of their technology at the time, especially around in that area. So I know there's a lot of people out there who are like, don't fucking touch these tombs, just let them rest in peace. But, you know, like anthropology and Egyptology are real things and it, it helps us understand history. So I'm like kind of... 50-50 on it, I guess. Now, many of King Tut's burial goods do show signs of being adapted for his use after they were originally made for other people. Now, they had over 5,000 artifacts, like I said, and all of this renewed interest in ancient Egypt just popped up. One of the symbols of ancient Egypt, still to this day, is King Tut's mask, which is now in the Egyptian Museum. And this is the one of the most beautiful and phenomenal things you'll ever see. A lot of his treasure has been around the world. Travels around the Egyptian Supreme Council of Antiquities allowed tours beginning in 1961, if you wanted to go there and actually look at the stuff. Then on November 4th, 2007, 85 years to the day after Carter's discovery, King Tut's mummy was placed on display in his underground tomb at Luxor. And they legit took this wrapped mummy, took it out of its golden sarcophagus, and they put it in a climate-controlled glass box. And the case was designed to prevent any rate of decomposition caused by humidity, warmth, Temperature, literally everything. Moisture, which would be humidity, but they had so many tourists visiting this tomb, they couldn't risk it. And then in 2009, the tomb was closed for restoration by the Ministry of Antiquities and the Getty Conservation Institute. Now, while the closure was originally planned for five years to restore the walls, which were affected by humidity at that point, there was a revolution in Egypt in 2011 and that obviously set the project back quite a bit and the tomb was reopened in February of 2019. So let's talk a little bit about some of the curses and some of the supernatural mindset of what's going on. 
since they discovered the first tomb, I mean the very first one, there have always been this legend surrounding them. And this whole curse mentality predates King Tut by centuries. So Jasmine Day is an Egyptologist who holds a doctorate in cultural anthropology, and she wrote a book called The Mummy's Curse, Mummy Mania in the English-Speaking World. It's published in 2006. Check it out. Go get that book. She goes on to say, The curse is a legend that developed gradually since sometime in the mid-19th century and has grown progressively with cumulative contributions by fiction literature, horror films, news media, and most recently the internet. My research uncovered forgotten American fiction stories from the 1860s in which male adventurers strip female mummies and steal their jewels, only to suffer a horrible death or dreadful consequences for those around them. Now, there's a lot of other scholars that agree that the association of curses and magic with mummies, it was widespread, like I said, before King Tut's tomb was ever found. This dude named Ronald Fritz, who's a history professor at Athens State University in Alabama, and he wrote a book called Egyptomania, A History of Fascination, Obsession, and Fantasy. This book was published in 2016. If you're into this kind of thing, go grab that. He said, the idea that Egypt was a land of mystery went back to the Greeks and Romans. And over time, the ancient Egyptians were credited with all sorts of supernatural and magical knowledge. I found that extremely interesting. And he went on to say, when Egypt began to open up to the West after the expedition of Napoleon, there was a fascination with mummies, and well-to-do people bought them to have them unwrapped as entertainment. Many people were troubled by this sort of meddling with the dead, and at the time, fictional stories that told of curses associated with mummies began to appear in literature. Fritz went on and said that the Irish author Bram Stoker who is most famous for Dracula, published a 1903 book called The Jewel of the Seven Stars, in which modern-day archaeologists suffer from a mummy's curse. And then we have the cinema. They started picking up on this whole idea of a curse being associated with mummies, and Eleanor Dobson, a lecturer of English literature at the University of Birmingham in the UK, she is an author of the book, Writing the Sphinx, Literature, Culture, and Egyptology, and it was published in 2020, another book you can go get. I'll rattle off the uh, rest of the sources at the end here. But she said, essentially, by the time of Carnarvon's death, which was George Herbert, audiences were primed to see discoveries of Egyptian artifacts in terms of these Gothic narratives. She also said that when the Titanic sank in 1912, some people believed that the mummy of a priestess in the British Museum had caused that sinking. The British Museum curator, Ernest Budge, received so many public inquiries regarding the alleged uh, cursed mummy at the museum that he was obligated to write a flyer debunking the rumors that could be distributed to the public. So, <laughs> Eleanor Day also went on to say, despite this, some people sent money for the museum to purchase flowers to lay at the feet of the dead priestess 
to appease her soul. And the tale of the mummy that sank the Titanic still continues to circulate on the internet today. I mean, pharaohs were notorious for leaving warnings on the tombs to discourage, like, thieves or grave robbers or even archaeologists who discovered the warnings. They were inclined to believe that bad luck would come their way if they were anything less than respectful. But the curses did not differentiate between thieves or archaeologists. Uh, they basically put out, like, bad luck, illness, and sometimes death. Now, a lot of historians and archaeologists, they argued that the curses are real. With the exception of a few cases, the curse itself has been construed by the reader rather than made clear through the writings. So people would read these curses, and then that's how they would associate them. It wasn't necessarily what the curses were saying or the writings inside the tombs. Now, I will give a couple examples of some of them because, like I said, this really was a thing. It was just in the early dynasties of Egypt, not so much in King Tut's time. One of the more interesting things is that uh, the curses relating to tombs are extremely rare. And it was because, at the time, the people writing the curses on the walls of the tombs, they were scared to record the curses in writing. And they didn't want to desecrate the tombs. So that's one of the reasons they were so rare. They were usually in private tombs in the Old Kingdom era and they would be directed towards the Ka priests to protect the tomb carefully and preserve its ritual purity, rather than it being a warning to any kind of potential grave robbers or anybody who enters the tomb. Now, one of these examples of uh, a writing says, Cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They that shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose. In the tomb of Anktifi, who was right around the 9th, 10th dynasty, contains the warning that says, Any ruler who shall do evil or wickedness to this coffin, may Heman not accept any goods he offers, and may his heir not inherit. And Heman just happened to be a local deity to Anktifi. Another tomb from the 6th dynasty contains an inscription that says, As for all men who shall enter this tomb, impure there will be judgment. An end shall be made for him. I shall seize his neck like a bird. I shall cast the fear of myself into him. So, like I said, there really were a lot of these types of inscriptions. But curses after the Old Kingdom era are less common, but they are way more severe. And there had been stories of curses like going back to the 19th century. But when Howard Carter discovered King Tut's tomb, they just multiplied like crazy. All of a sudden, it was just this massive thing about the media and all these curses and everything. You know, everybody's cursed, everybody's going to die. And part of that was because King Tut's tomb was uninterrupted, like not opened for 3,000 years. It was the most intact tomb that was ever found. So because of that, 
people started believing that King Tut unleashed this crazy powerful curse of death and destruction um, because of that fact, because it was sealed for so long. Now, here's the misconceptions. There was no curse found inscribed in King Tut's tomb. And this is probably one of the best lines I, I read, and I this is great. A dude named Donald Redford <laughs> said that the evidence of curses relating to King Tut is considered to be so meager that it's viewed as unadulterated claptrap. And I don't know why, but instead of saying it's bullshit from now on, I'm literally going to use that phrase, unadulterated claptrap, because... I don't know. That is just fantastic, and we need to bring it back. But anyway, curses today, even some people like to link archaeological discoveries and some events to curses. As a matter of fact, in 2018, when this big-ass 2,000-year-old coffin was found in Alexandria, Egypt, some people still feared that opening it would unleash a curse. And I actually, I remember seeing that uh, when they found that. Even in 2021, last year, when that ship got stuck in the Suez Canal, some people tried to place the blame on mummies. And they said that mummies of several ancient Egyptian pharaohs were set to be transported to a museum in Fustat. So... It's, I don't know, it's just so interesting, just the mentality. And here's the deal. I am a superstitious person. I don't I don't care who knows it. I am. I'm fucking weird like that. But this dude, Ronald Fritz, who I had quoted earlier, he had a very good point. He said, people want life to have meaning and not be chaotic and random or coincidental. Traditionally, former religion has supplied that need to explain existence. But many people have turned to magical and supernatural beliefs, and these include curses. Like I said, it's pretty interesting, and in part two, we're going to get to um, how the curse of King Tut's tomb started, how big of a factor the media at the time played in these rumors, And the fact that Howard Carter played into these rumors, too, because he didn't want anybody else going into this tomb. And then we will go down a line of deaths. Um, I've got 10 of them lined up. We're going to go through them, and we're going to try to debunk these cursed deaths and debunk the curse of King Tut. I think that is about all I have for you. So... Ways you can get a hold of me, you can follow me on Instagram, mysterious underscore podcast. You can follow me on Twitter, at PodcastMC. I do not have a Facebook page anymore. You can join the group if you want to, though. Just type in Mysterious Circumstances, and um, yeah, just look for the group on Facebook. It's not too hard to find. Uh, You can also email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. I will say this, the... I've been waiting two weeks for a new microphone. I'm finally doing an upgrade after like four years or something, four or five years of having the same uh, equipment. So uh, part two might have a little bit different audio, but it'll be for the better. Some of the sources. um, We have an article on mental floss by Stacey Conrad. 
published in 2018. We have a History Staff article on History.com, which was originally published in 2012. We have a Live Science article by Benjamin Radford, which was published in 2014. And we have All That's Interesting, an article that was published by Katie Serena in 2017. And we got HistoryToday.com, Richard Cavendish, that was published in 2014. We have a 2017 History Embalmed Newspapers article, and that is called Newspapers and the Curse of King Tut. We have an Owen Jarris article from LiveScience.com, published in 2021. I know it's a lot of sources, and um, I will see you folks on the flip side. 